My name is Liz Gray and I'm delighted to welcome you here to the chapel and to all of you lovely people on Zoom. It's quite strange being back in the chapel, but rather delightful and looking forward to all being in person on Easter Sunday. But I wonder, like you, I suspect, Simon and I have watched various things uh, on television over the last uh, pandemic season. And one of the things that we kind of quite often enjoy watching is a, is a good murder mystery, a good whodunit. And we actually watched one this week. It was pretty typical in that it started with the murder or the death. It started with the death of the main character. Shortly afterwards, the rather brilliant but slightly odd detective arrives on the scene, accompanied by some rather incompetent policemen. I'm sorry, I have a very high regard for policemen, but that's the way these whodunits work out. And then gradually over the next 90 minutes or so, they begin to unweave, unpick the story. And you see extracts, relationships with family and friends and colleagues. And quite often, movies like that major on flashbacks, what was said or done, what pushed the murderer over the edge to commit the crime. Murder mysteries can be fascinating. Agatha Christie is such a delightful writer, a puzzle for us to ponder on a chilly night. And in the movies, we gradually get to the point where we see what kind of a person it was who has died. We gain insights into family relationships and business dealings, possible motives, interwoving stories, all, of course, moving together, exploring motives. Every person had their grudges, their reasons why the individual had hindered their lives, blocked their flourishing, either truly or in their imagination, their version of the story. Of course, several people had muttered in the previous days that they had wished the victim dead in the days preceding the crime. And as we watch and second guess and try to outsmart the detective as he put pieces it all together as to who actually had a real motive and who was just grumbling, eventually the moment of truth comes, the grand denouement when the whole web of truth and untruth is revealed and the whodunit becomes a he-done-it or she-done-it. And quite often by that point, you might be a little bit surprised, but, but on the whole, you've normally built up pictures of why everybody could have done it. Picking the, the one who did it seems almost arbitrary. But what struck me was those flashbacks going back to the previous few, few days. And tonight, what we're doing is we step into this Maundy Thursday story, we're doing a bit of a flashback. We actually know what happens the next day. We know that Jesus dies. We know who betrays him. We know about the kangaroo trial. We know about the whispered conversations. We know about the going to and fro. We know the manner of death. We know, too, that this man, Jesus, who died, was completely innocent. He had never harmed or wronged or robbed anyone. He'd never broken a law. He'd never been cruel or careless. But on Good Friday, tomorrow, he will die. So let's go back to the hours before he dies and see what kind of man this was. What played out in those final hours? In this case, the one who is going to die is the one person who knows exactly 
what is going on. And in fact, he is the one who really controls the narrative of these next 24 hours. Jesus knew what was happening. He was aware of the significance of the Passover. He saw the gathering thunderclouds. He knew the time of his death was approaching as he would take the place of the Passover lamb for all people in all times. And so how did Jesus choose to spend his final evening? He made plans for a meal to have with his friends. He invited them to join him. He hosted a Passover supper, a meal with heavy and ancient religious significance. A meal where every morsel they ate and drank had meaning, had weight. It was a meal which spoke of freedom and a God who loves and rescues his people. A meal with meat and wine and candles and prayers. And Jesus opened the evening by welcoming his disciples into that room and then kneeling before them, stripped like a servant, doing the task of the loneliest, lowliest member of the household. And as he does so, he explains to them that he is demonstrating the way of love, the way of putting others first. He washes all of their feet, including Judas. And he explains that the way of leadership is to do this, to come and to wash those who you would serve. He sets an example. Jesus said to them, we heard these words, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus offers them a complete reversal of normal power hierarchies. The message is so clear. If you're going to love God, then you need to love others well too. You have to follow this example that Jesus is laying down. You have to go in his footsteps. You have to be humble. You have to seek the good of others before your own. And then they sat together and they ate that Passover meal. A good time, I think. A good time of being together. People who dearly loved each other. Perhaps the most poignant moment of the whole meal, though, is when Jesus, at a point, dips bread into the wine and passes it to Judas. And then gives him permission to set in motion the wheels wow that would lead to Jesus' death. He allows Judas to make his choice, to go about his way, breaking faith. At every single stage of this evening, Jesus indicates that he is in control of this narrative. And Jesus lets Judas go. And then he kind of draws the disciples in together, and we get this extraordinary teaching which John records in three chapters of his gospel. He uses this opportunity as a moment to teach, to exhort, 
to instruct in the comfort and privacy of this sheltered room. No disturbance from strangers, nobody pushing in, nobody demanding anything. An opportunity to be completely focused and for them to pay attention to his every word. He tells them so many things in that discourse. He tells them about troubles that are going to come. He tells them about the way that things are going to get hard. He explains repeatedly that he is about to leave. But the other theme which comes up all the way through is this message about the Holy Spirit that he was going to send, that he was going to come. And in chapter 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I love the way later on he calls them, my dear children. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus explains again and again that he's leaving, but he explains again and again that he will leave and he will send the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God that has been empowering all that Jesus has done throughout his ministry, is going to be given to them. Jesus explains that love must die, but that his death will lead to them stepping into a fullness that can't happen when he is still with them. Love will die, but love will go on. And then he prays for them. I imagine him reaching out and touching them, gathering them together, encouraging them to draw strength from their community at that point. He prays for them that they may be one. He prays out loud his concerns for them, his longings for their obedient faithful journeys in the days to come. He pours out all his final words, the teachings he held most dear, the most important things he, they needed to grasp. He told them all the ways he loves them. And he gave them hope. He gave them words that they could cling to in the days following the crucifixion. And he reinterpreted the Passover so that they would always remember that this was a new beginning, a paradigm-shifting moment when nothing would ever be the same again. But unlike in those whodunits, those murder mysteries, he also gave nobody any reason to kill him. His life continued exemplary. No bleak motives. Nobody was disinherited or shamed. Nobody was cheated or lied to. This was a murder without any reason or cause. And ever since that night, throughout all the ages, once a week, the church has gathered around the table, symbolically gathering to remember that last supper, eating tiny morsels sometimes of bread and sips of wine, remembering, remembering what was true about this night. This is the night we hold on to week by week. Week by week, we come back to the table as we remember. But then once a year, normally, we take a moment as well to remember this act of Jesus kneeling in humility before his disciples, 
to wash their feet, putting his whole body into the actions of a servant. And we bring our bodies, too, to this moment. The tenderness of Christ's last night offers us all a chance to reflect, to be thankful of the model he laid down for us as to how to live our lives, even to our final moments. So in a moment, whether you are at home or here in the chapel, we're going to give you an opportunity to wash your own hands or feet. Or perhaps if you're in a household, you can wash each other's feet if you're at home. In this strange COVID time, we can't do what we would long to do, which is to hold feet in our hands and to touch them. We have to do a slightly more sanitized pouring water over hands, but the symbolism is there. Remember, as you encounter water, as you feel the water on your hands, the feel that the disciples had of the water on their feet even as they had the touch of Christ's hands lovingly holding those dusty, dusty feet. And so we bring our bodies to remember and to demonstrate, to show that we want to prefer one another. And in a moment of quiet soon, will you ask Jesus to expose places in your heart when your love and motive are muddled, ask him to come with a willing obedience to serve others and to give thanks that God, above all else, serves us and loves us. As Jesus steps into these last 24 hours of his earthly life, he didn't do it for himself, he did it for you and for me. And he chose to use his whole life and death to reveal to us the way of love. And so this evening, give thanks for that decision Christ made to step into Good Friday ready to die and give thanks for his deep love and for the ways that he reaches out to touch and hold you and for the gift we have and can continue to appreciate every single day of the precious Holy Spirit. Love chose to die, but love also rises.